I'm Gregory Rodriguez, I'm the founder and director of Sokolo. Um, this is our 37th uh, event of 2008, and this is the 19th venue we've uh, represented in programs around LA and in Shanghai. Um, for those of you who don't know, Sokolo, which means uh, public square in Spanish, is a free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum around LA. We, we're seeking to create a, a truly nonpartisan and multi-ethnic space in a city with too few welcoming places. And we think we're, we're actually proud that we're doing a good job of it. Um, before we start, I'd like to tell you a little bit about upcoming programs um, and to beg you for your support when we pass the bucket in a little bit. But we, we, we will lock the doors before we pass the bucket. <laughs> October 14th, uh, we're taking a couple weeks off. Um, Harmony Gold Theater in West Hollywood at 8 p.m. We're really happy to be uh, presenting a pre-release screening of I've Loved You So Long, uh, starring Kristen Scott Thomas. We'll have first-time director Philippe Claudel. He's a French novelist and literature professor there for a Q&A afterwards with LA Times columnist Megan Dom. Um, that's going to be really cool. A bunch of, I'll be in Detroit that day, so I won't see it. Uh, October 21st, Actors Gang, Culver City. Gustavo Arellano of Ask a Mexican Fame will deliver a lecture entitled Orange County, Nature's Wonderland. October 28th at the Goethe Institute, Los Angeles, and Miracle Mile, UC Berkeley economist Edward Miguel will deliver a lecture based on his book uh, titled Economic Gangsters, Corruption, Violence, and the Poverty of Nations. Uh, it sounds, it's, actually sounds pretty cool. He's, uh, he's answering the very simple question, why are poor countries poor? October 29th, 7.30 at Actors Gang, a brilliant young writer, associate editor at The Atlantic, Rehan Salam will give a lecture entitled The Next GOP and speak on the themes of his new book, Grand New Party, How Conservatives Can Win the Working Class and Save the American Dream. I told you we were nonpartisan. <laughs> Lastly, uh, November 19th, um, the, uh, I, 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 I'm a big fan of his, uh, Christopher Caldwell, the Financial Times columnist, and New York Times Magazine contributor and a, and a writer for the Weekly Standard will be given a lecture at the Hammer Museum in Westwood uh, entitled, What's the West's Problem with Islam? We welcome you all to, to join us. Um, as you should know, Sokolo programs are all free to the public, and we generally try to booze you up afterwards with free drinks um, and to give you a chance to talk further with tonight's guests and talk to each other. We, uh, again, encourage your donations. For 30 bucks, we'll give you a, a cool-looking Sokolo T-shirt. Um, we were really grateful to Cindy Kennard and Melissa Kuypers. Kuypers over there in the green back there at NPR West. Thank her, please. 
Thank you. Uh, we, we love, Sokolo loves doing programs at NPR West. Hint, hint. Uh, we're grateful to California Endowment. You can meditate on these logos. California Endowment, the James Irvine Foundation, the Annenberg Foundation, the Los Angeles Times, Bank of America, Washington Mutual, the Reardon Foundation. Dick Reardon has given us like 10,000 bucks out of his pocket every year for five years, which is kind of cool. Um, the gas company, uh, laobserve.com and LA36. You can watch us sun- Sunday nights at 7 on LA's cultural channel. Um, and you can get everything we have on the web, our audio and video. Uh, on SokoloLA.org, which after October 26th will be SokoloPublicSquare.org because we're, um, we're going to do some programs nationally. Um, if you haven't already, please shut off your cell phones. There'll be times for Q&A. You really haven't shut it off yet, have you? <laughs> you knew I was going to say it. Um, There will be time for Q&A afterwards, so please wait for a microphone. Uh, Again, this is recorded for a podcast. Um, Join us for drinks again in the lobby. Now, I'm pleased to introduce tonight's speakers, um, who are the co-authors of America Between the Wars from 11.9 to 9.11. Not in the order in which they'll be speaking, or uh, Derek Cholet on our left. is a senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security, where he works on a variety of issues related to U.S. foreign policy and national security strategy. He is also a non-resident fellow in the Brookings Institution's Global Economy and Development Program and an adjunct associate professor at Georgetown University. Previously, he was foreign policy advisor to Senator John Edwards. He is also the author of The Road to the Dayton Accords, A Study of American Statecraft, and his commentaries and reviews on U.S. foreign policy and politics have appeared in the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, the Financial Times, Washington Monthlies, and, and many other books and publications throughout the U.S. and Europe. Secondly, in the green trunks, uh, James Goldgeier, uh, on, on my left, <laughs> um, is the Whitney Shepherdson Senior Fellow for Transatlantic Relations at the Council on Foreign Relations. He was previously an adjunct Senior Fellow for Europe Studies at CFR and the Henry A. Kissinger Scholar in Foreign Policy and International Relations at the Library of Congress. He is a Professor of Political Science and International Affairs at George Washington University, uh, Mr. Goldgeier's areas of expertise include NATO, transatlantic relations, and U.S.-Russian relations. From 2001 to 2005, he directed the Institute for European, Russian, and Eurasian Studies at George Washington University. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Cholet and Mr. Goldgeier. Well, thanks very much. Thanks for having us here, and uh, thank you all so much for for coming out, uh, we uh, well, I got into LA last night. We did a we did an event at lunch today, and so having been out and about in LA uh, in the uh, traffic, I'm quite appreciative uh, of uh, of you all turning out uh, to be with us tonight. Um, we're going to tell you a little bit about why we wrote this book and uh, how we think that it helps us understand where we are today, as we're in the midst of this uh, extraordinarily uh, interesting presidential campaign. Uh, and, of course, uh, financial crisis, uh, of which uh, uh, we're also happy to, uh, to talk about that as well, um, and trying to think about sort of where we're going to be moving forward as a country after January 20th, 2009, with a new president. And what we hope this book will help people do is to put into context the kinds of issues that we're dealing with, uh, because we start this book 
uh, on 11-9, November 9, 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall, so almost 20 years ago, uh, and argue that, that we really have to look back at uh, those, those two decades in order to understand where we are today. Um, it's, it's a little unusual uh, to be talking about 11-9. We've gotten used to, to talking about 9-11, and it's one of the reasons that we wrote this book. Um, you know, uh, there's been a lot of discussion since September 11th about how 9-11 changed everything. And, of course, there's no question that in many fundamental ways, uh, 9-11 uh, did change many things. Uh, you know, of course, for the families of the victims, 9-11 did change everything. And there are a lot of things here at home that have changed quite a bit. Uh, you know, as I said, we both flew out here, and, you know, we know how different the experience is uh, flying uh, than it was before 9-11. And, you know, all the issues associated with civil liberties and uh, sort of our, our domestic institutions for dealing with homeland security. So certainly a lot of things changed after 9-11. But the point of this book is to argue that many of the issues that we're dealing with today were already there before 9-11. People may have woken up to them on September 11th, but they were already there. So you look at particular countries that are in, in the news, North Korea once again in the news today. When North Korea is not in the news, Iran's in the news. Iraq's always there. Uh, issues like proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, terrorism, uh, even you know other big issues out there like how we deal with the whole set of issues associated with globalization. All these kinds of things, they were already all there uh, on 9-11. And in fact, our argument is that really they, they come to the fore after 11-9, after November 9th, uh, the fall of the Berlin Wall, and then the ensuing collapse of the Soviet Union. It's that end of the Cold War that gives rise to a lot of these problems uh, as you start to see in the 1990s failed states and civil wars and ethnic conflicts, and you start to see the rise of al-Qaeda uh, and so on. And so we'd like to try to take people back uh, to that to that earlier date, 11-9, which, of course, is not just the numerical mirror image of 9-11, but, you know, in so many other ways uh, is, the, is the mirror image of 9-11 because it was a day of triumph, a day of great hope that the Cold War was over and that we would be on to something better. Now, when we look at sort of this, how we think about our recent history, um, you know, there is this powerful notion out there that 9-11 changed everything, and a lot of that has come from the President of the United States, uh, who has articulated uh, a, a frame for how we think about these years, in large part to be able to uh, justify the policies that have been pursued since September 11th. And if you look, for example, at his second inaugural address uh, in uh, 2005, here's how he framed our recent history. He said, first there came the shipwreck of communism. And then there came years of sabbatical, years of repose. And then there came a day of the day of fire. And other, some conservative commentators have called the years between 1989 and 2001 the holiday from history. And, you know, when you do that, what you're basically saying is we don't need to pay attention to those years. They weren't important. Nothing happened or they were squandered or the Clinton administration wasn't doing anything. You know, there are, there are lots of things associated with thinking about that period as a holiday from history or as years of sabbatical. And, you know, I'm an academic, so when somebody says years, you know, the President of the United States says years of sabbatical, my ears perk up because 
I mean, we live for years of sabbatical in academia, but um, it really doesn't have its place uh, as we think about the past. So um, what we're going to try to do is talk uh, first about some of the uh, ideas about American foreign policy since 11.9, and then uh, Derek's going to talk about the politics, because this book tries to weave both together. You know, sometimes there are books about foreign policy, and they're just about foreign policy. They're not about politics. And then you have books about politics, and usually those books are about either the Democrats or the Republicans. And we really try to tell the story of, of both the foreign policy ideas that developed after 11-9 and why they're relevant for today, and then also the politics and how Democrats and Republicans were shaped by the end of the Cold War and how what occurred in the Cold War's aftermath is quite relevant for thinking about the presidential campaigns that we're seeing uh, today. So if we look first at the, uh, look first at the ideas, you know, um, recently there was that Charles Gibson interview with, with Governor Palin, and he asked her the question about the Bush doctrine. And, you know, she had her response, and the critics jumped all over it, saying she didn't understand what the Bush doctrine was, and supporters said, well, there are lots of different Bush doctrines, so she had to get clarification as to which one Charles Gibson was referring to. And it really obscured a bigger question, which is, why do presidents have doctrines? Is that a good thing that you have a doctrine? You know, if there is a foreign policy debate Friday night, uh, there will likely be a question. What's the Obama doctrine? What's the McCain doctrine? So what you want to think about is, well, what, why, what is this whole thing about presidential doctrines? And we try, to, we try to tell the story in the post-Cold War about how people have thought about this, because you have this big break in American foreign policy history. For 40 years, American foreign policy had a clear purpose, containment of the Soviet Union. It was an easy idea to understand, right? One simple, single bumper sticker, containment. You knew what the big threat was, Soviet Union, threat of Soviet expansionism, and all of foreign policy could be geared around that that notion of containment. And if you looked at the U.S. government and what people were working on, you know, if you were in the government and you were working on Latin America or you were working on the Middle East or you were working on trade issues, you were working on oceans, you know, resources in the oceans and so on, no matter what you were working on, you were involved in the U.S.-Soviet rivalry and the whole strategy of containment. And, you know, we had the Truman Doctrine and the Nixon Doctrine, the Carter Doctrine and the Reagan Doctrine. You had all those, but they were all within this strategy of containment. It was an easy thing to understand, first articulated by famous diplomat George Kennan in 1947. And really, even though there were huge debates about containment, and, of course, we had big debates during Vietnam, and there were debates in the 1980s over the application of containment to Central America, there was still largely a bipartisan consensus that that was what America should be about. And then you have 11-9, and containment now is no longer relevant because communism is collapsing, and there's no need to worry about that expansion of Soviet communism. So now the question is, well, now what's American foreign policy all about? What is the U.S. role in a world absent that single threat? And there was a huge effort to come up with the new containment, the new easy-to-understand phrase about the purpose of American foreign policy. Certainly in Washington, everyone inside and outside the government wanted to be the next George Kennan and come up with the, 
you know, the new phrase that would make him or her famous. And if you look, for example, at the Clinton administration, uh, in 1993, they had a, a big uh, debate about a new, you know, big new idea to put forward. And inside the government, that effort was known as the Kennan sweepstakes. Because, you know, was, who's going to come up? And so one of the speechwriters at the White House came up with the phrase democratic enlargement. Now, do you remember democratic enlargement? No. So you can see it didn't really stick as the phrase of the era. And there were all sorts of other phrases that came out during that time. There was the, there was the age of hope, and there was assertive multilateralism, and there was the third way, and there were all these things. And they didn't work. The reason they didn't work is because we don't live in the world that we lived in during the Cold War. In the Cold War, we knew that we had this one big threat. And since the Cold War, we have a range of problems, a, a whole host of challenges as well as opportunities. Just mentioned them earlier, you know, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, terrorism, climate change, globalization, failed states, you know, all these things that we've been dealing with since the end of the Cold War, the rise of India and China, and so on, and hard to capture. One of the things that was most interesting to us as we did the research for the book was not only how much effort people put into trying to come up with this new phrase, but how frustrated Bill Clinton was that his team couldn't do this. He was constantly complaining to his aides, why haven't we come up with the new bumper sticker? We've got to have the new bumper sticker because you've got to be able to explain foreign policy simply to the American people. But again, as I just said, there's a reason why they couldn't come up with the bumper sticker. It's too complex a world. But this was a huge critique from the Republicans of the Clinton team throughout the 90s. Well, they don't know what they're doing. They don't know what they're doing. They don't have a doctrine. They don't have that single simple phrase, so they must not know what they're doing. It's all ad hoc. And that was their critique in 2000. That was the critique of the George W. Bush campaign. So the Bush team comes in, and they think, you know, real foreign policy people have doctrines. And, of course, they don't have any idea what to do either in the first eight months, but then you have September 11th. And then you have the war on terror. And you have the doctrine of preemption. And that is the Bush doctrine. Um, I mean, that's how I would have answered Charles Gibson had he asked me. But, you know, you think about that. Every, so everything now focused around this war on terror. But if you think about what I was just saying, you can see the immediate problem of war on terror. First of all, let's assume that it's the perfect way to think about dealing with terrorism. Even if it is, it's leaving out all those other problems that we're faced with. Right? So if you focus everything on the war on terror, you're not dealing with climate change, globalization, rise of India and China, and all the other things that the United States faces. But even within that issue, the issue of terrorism, you have the, the problem that that frame uh, has not been uh, the best way to think about terrorism because it involves more than just using military means to combat the problem. And if you look over time at people heavily involved in this war on terror, there's a lot of dissatisfaction with it. Senior military officials, we spoke to a number of former military officials, you know, they don't like it because they don't want people to think that it's all about a military solution. They know that there, there, that there are other things the United States needs to be doing, non-military means, to be dealing with the problem of terrorism. 
Believe it or not, when Donald Rumsfeld stepped down as Secretary of State, or was asked to step down as, 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 asked to step down as Secretary of Defense, he, um, he said, you know, the war on terror really wasn't a very good phrase. When we spoke with Colin Powell for the book, and we asked him about war on terror, he said, the war on terror is a terrible phrase. He said, let's not hyperventilate. This isn't the Soviets coming back. And in fact, he even said to us, this is a criminal problem. So really remarkable that one of the main actors involved as the war on terror got underway was saying to us, this, you know, this isn't the best way to look at it. And so that's why our, you know, as we look at this debate developing in, in foreign policy in this campaign, as we, and as we think that, in fact, especially because of the recent discussion of the Bush doctrine, that they could easily be asked, you know, the Obama doctrine and McCain doctrine. You know, our hope is that the candidates, rather than taking the bait and coming up with some simple, single bumper sticker thing, will actually talk about the need to have a much broader strategy. Obviously, any president needs to have principles and, and goals and priorities, but not something, but explain to the American people why you just can't do it in one single simple phrase and why that's, in fact, worse than not having one at all. In 1994, George Kennan, who had authored the strategy of containment, was 90 years old. And the Clinton team invited him to Washington to meet with them to, so that they could get his advice. And they said to him, well, you know, you came up with containment. It was a very successful way of for people to understand what American foreign policy was all about. How do we do that? And he said what I've just been discussing, basically. He said the world is too complicated for that single bumper sticker. So don't try to come up with a bumper sticker. Try to come up with a thoughtful paragraph or two. And that's, that's where we need to be. That's where the next president needs to be, articulating a thoughtful paragraph or two. Now, as I said, this book isn't just about ideas. It's also about politics. It's about the interplay between Democrats and Republicans and what the end of the Cold War meant for, those two, for the two political parties. And for that, I'll turn things over to Derek. Thanks a lot. Thanks, everyone, for coming out tonight. Um, as Jim has alluded to, I mean, this book is a diplomatic history. It's, it's a history of the events, often overlooked events, uh, from 1989 to 2001. It's also a history of ideas and a, and a sort of a, a recollection of the intense debate we had in this country about America's role in the world uh, after the fall of the Berlin Wall and how that debate very much informed and drove the debate after 9-11 about America's role in the world. Um, and it's also a history of politics. Um, and in that sense, it's a history about people people involved in politics. And so in doing the research for the book, uh, in addition to doing the typical you know, scholarly things, reading, uh, getting into the archives and whatnot, we also tried to talk to as many people as we could who were part of this debate uh, during these years. And that's from all ends of the political spectrum, from on the far you know, ends of the left and the right, Ralph Nader and Pat Buchanan, uh, to you know, conversations as Jim alluded to with Colin Powell and Newt Gingrich and Henry Kissinger, you know, on the Republican side, to folks like Madeleine Albright and Robert Rubin, you know, of the of the Democratic uh, Clinton years. So what we try to do in this book is, in many ways, tell their stories and tell, uh, you know, tell you about their reflections back on these years, with the benefit of the hinds of hindsight. You know, looking back after 9-11 at, at their debates and what, what ideas they were pushing and what they think of those ideas now and maybe uh, some roads that they didn't travel. 
Um, now, so on the politics, as, as Jim said, we, we try very much to sort of show the interaction between the debates that intellectuals and policy wonks were having and the political debates and the politics on both the left and the right as they were taking shape after the Cold War. And if you think about it, I mean, the Cold War uh, had in many ways shaped modern liberalism and modern conservatism. So it only makes sense that the end of the Cold War created both challenges uh, and opportunities for both liberals and conservatives and Democrats and Republicans as they tried to refashion themselves and adjust to this new moment in which communism was not going to be part of, uh, you know, a, a threat in our, in our, to world politics. Um, so well, why don't we start with the conservatives and sort of and what this meant for them. Uh, you know, it's interesting because the end of the Cold War was a paradoxical moment for conservatives and for Republicans. On the one hand, it was a moment of great triumph. It was seen as a, as a culmination of many years of efforts that were sort of best represented by Ronald Reagan and sort of the, this tough stance to take on the evil empire. It was Ronald Reagan who had said, you know, just two years before 11-9, uh, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall, and in fact it fell. So on the one hand, conservatives felt this great kind of surge of victory. But uh, on the other hand, there was a bit of a crisis of confidence and direction because communism, and therefore anti-communism, had been the glue that had held the Republican Party together uh, throughout the Cold War. And without communism, you found uh, Republicans sort of dividing about what America's role should be and what Republican foreign policy should be. Uh, one of those factions was best represented by the Republican president at the time of the, the fall of the Berlin Wall, uh, George H.W. Bush. And the views that he represented are sort of interesting to reflect on for the perspective of today and sort of what we see as, you know, the, the caricature of Republican foreign policy. Uh, it's, uh, you know, George H.W. Bush was very hopeful about internationalism uh, after the collapse of communism. He had served as an ambassador to the United Nations in the 1970s. He's the only U.S. president to have served as an ambassador to the United Nations. Uh, he loved being in New York and serving in the give and take of, of the diplomacy at the U.N., but he was very frustrated by his time at the U.N. by the, the superpower standoff and the fact that as long as the Soviet Union and the United States were at loggerheads, the U.N. was never going to be able to work as its, its founders had dreamed. And so the Cold War ends, and Bush says, hey, we're in business. You know, the U.N., can finally be the kind of institution that, you know, leaders like FDR and Truman had hoped it would be. And he hoped that the, man, that the illustration of that would be the, first, the way they handled the first Persian Gulf War and the response to Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait in August 1990. After that invasion, you saw the United States and the Soviet Union stand side by side to condemn uh, Saddam's invasion of Kuwait. And, it's, you know, again, think of it in the context. Just a few years earlier that moment could have been the epicenter of a Cold War superpower showdown. You know, Iraq, a Soviet client state invading Kuwait, a U.S. client state. I mean, that would have been sort of your classic kind of Cold War struggle, but instead the opposite happened. The United States and the Soviet Union worked together and worked with other great powers around the world through an institution like the United Nations to put together an unprecedented coalition to get Saddam out of Kuwait. And Bush talked about it at the time as, as, as a new world order, when in fact it wasn't a new order. It was really about making the old order work. And he hoped that through how he handled the Persian Gulf crisis in 1990 and 91, 
Uh, what he would, in fact, do is show people that the United Nations could work and that the great powers of the world, the U.S., the Soviets, our European allies, even the Chinese, could work together to police the world and right wrongs. Well, of course, that was not, even though, even though he was the president, that, and he was a, the Republican president, that was not necessarily a universally held view among conservatives. And in fact, we saw during these years a growth of a significant backlash among many conservatives about that worldview and that kind of hopeful vision of internationalism uh, that George H.W. Bush expressed. And we saw that sort of personified uh, uh, in the candidacy of, of Pat Buchanan, in 1992. I think at that point he was, a, he was a commentator for CNN, not a commentator for MSNBC as he is today. But he put together a fairly serious run for president in 1992. He, he ran against Bush in the primaries. He got 37% of the vote uh, in the New Hampshire primary and create, you know, sort of certainly wounded uh, the sitting president of his own party. And the vision that he presented was much different than the hopefulness of George H.W. Bush. It was a vision that was maybe neo-isolationist, certainly nationalist, very pessimistic uh, ab about sort of what the United Nations could do. And in fact, his view was, uh, Buchanan's view was that, you know, the, the U.S. needed to be less involved in the world and, and less involved in organizations like the United Nations. Now, when we interviewed Buchanan for the book, he made very clear, you know, that he was a staunch anti-communist. I mean, he had served with Ronald Reagan in the White House. He had served with Richard Nixon in the White House. He made no bones about being a tough uh, hawk during the Cold War. But his view was that the Cold War was a special moment and that we had to rise to the occasion to fight the evil empire. But with communism gone, we could recede back into the background as a country and be more normal and be less ambitious in the world. And so, therefore, he was very critical of what George H.W. was trying to do uh, in his foreign policy leadership. You know, Pat Buchanan's slogan in 1992 uh, in his run for president was, was come home America. And he reminded Jim and I of that. And we, we sort of you know, said, well, that's interesting because that was George McGovern's slogan in 1972. And he said, actually, uh, um, Senator McGovern sent him a note in 1992 uh, after he'd seen him on a TV show or something and said, you know, Pat, I'm... Glad to see you're getting some mileage out of my own slogan. It didn't work so well for me, but, you know, best of luck. Uh, and uh, Buchanan, you know, sort of chuckled at that and said, you know, I sent McGovern a note back and said, you know, George, we couldn't come home in 1972, but we have to come home in 1992. Uh, now, although Buchanan, in the end, didn't come close to winning the nomination, as I said, he did well enough to wound Bush, and I think teach Bush, at least Bush interpreted from his experience in taking on Buchanan in the primaries, that maybe he needed to talk about foreign policy less in the 1992 campaign. Uh, Buchanan was given a, a primetime speaking slot at the Houston Convention in 1992, the Republican Convention. Uh, and I think Buchanan's ideas certainly lived on within conservatism, and we saw them sort of take hold in, in what would be maybe a third faction uh, among conservatives in, in the 1990s that we saw really emerge in the mid-decade after the 1994 midterm elections with the congressional republics. Republicans, the contract with America Republicans, that freshman wave that came in and, and uh, brought the Congress back under Republican control for the first time um, in decades and very much, uh, you know, wounded the Clinton administration and where, you know, their leader, Newt Gingrich, was considered by many at the time as sort of like a prime minister uh, in terms of the power. And remember, that was a class of, of, of political leaders who uh, they, they weren't pure purely in the Buchanan realm, but they were very skeptical of, of, of institutions like the United Nations, very hawkish, 
pushed for things like missile defense. By and large, they downgraded, however, the role of foreign affairs generally. I mean, in, in the contract with America, the, the ten planks of it, only one dealt with foreign affairs. Remember, this was a class of, of politicians, many of whom bragged about the fact that they had never owned passports, you know, when they came into office. And that very much represented the center of gravity of the Republican Party on foreign policy throughout the 1990s. Uh, and that was, they were in fact, you know, they were, they were the only ones in government during these years in being in control of the Congress. The fourth faction, which, again, it, it, it's interesting to look back with hindsight where they were in the 90s because it's, it's the group of conservatives that we probably talked the most about uh, in the years since 9-11, uh, are the neoconservatives. And what was interesting is during the 1990s, after the end of the Cold War, they were basically given up for dead. Neoconservatism as a political force uh, in the Republican Party and a conservative movement generally was, was pretty much nowhere in the mid-1990s. You were hard-pressed to find anyone uh, you know, in Washington who would even really identify themselves as a neoconservative. And in some ways, our book is a, is a sort of a tracing of the steady decline and the slow rise of neoconservatism as the decade went on and sort of then really exploded uh, out into the political atmosphere in the George W. Bush years. Uh, and you go back and you, you read what, what, what you know, the few who w were neoconservatives were writing in the mid-'90s, and much of their writings were uh, really more about beating up their fellow Republicans and criticizing particularly the Republicans in power on Capitol Hill for the sort of isolationist drift that was underway in the Republican Party as it was about beating up the Clinton administration. Um, and, in fact, in some interesting areas, they, the neoconservatives in the Clinton administrations found, them, found themselves on the same side, you know, on, for, for example, on intervention in the Balkans. Uh, but, so what you find at the end of that decade, or really in 2001, uh, is a conservative movement that is in many ways directionless and very fractured, and when there's intense debates among themselves about the way forward. I'll pick up sort of where we went from there uh, later. First, I want to get to what was going on with the liberals and the Democrats. Um, for, for, for liberals and for Democrats, in many ways, the, the end of the Cold War was a, was a sort of a mirror uh, of what it meant for the conservatives in that uh, there was a sense of relief and hope that foreign policy, the Democrats could reunify themselves around a new set of foreign policy ideals. And they didn't have to be defensive about foreign policy anymore. During the Cold War, Liberals and Democrats constantly found themselves on the defense, particularly after Vietnam, where Republicans always seemed to sort of be able to use foreign policy as a weapon against liberals to show them either as weak or directionless uh, or sort of believing in ideas that were, you know, kind of gooey internationalist stuff, you know, un-American in some way. And so liberals hoped, and, and, and Bill Clinton as a candidate for president believed that with the end of the Cold War there was a new opportunity where Democrats didn't, wouldn't just be able to have to play defense anymore, but they could actually find a new vision for liberalism and for the Democratic Party as they move forward into this new world. And that sort of, as we argue in the book, kind of centered around four pillars uh, that by the end of that, the two, this 12-year period became, sort of defined the center of gravity uh, for the Democratic Party on foreign policy. Uh, the first of those issues is one that, that again, with, with a sort of looking back from the moment we're in now may strike some of you as, as odd or just uh, off-key a bit, which is Bill Clinton and his top advisors believed 
early on in, in, in his campaign for president and throughout his presidency that one of the, the sort of pillars of that foreign policy should be the promotion of democracy and the promotion of values. In fact, during the 1992 campaign, Bill Clinton criticized George H.W. Bush and the Republican Party, party for um, coddling dictators, for not paying enough attention to human rights in places like the Balkans. And he, he articulated a vision that was about an America engaged in the world and promoting liberal values and promoting democracy. And Clinton as a candidate and then Clinton as a president talked repeatedly about his hopes for spreading democracy around the world. And the idea was that with containment gone and communism in the dustbin of history, that you had a whole part of the planet that had basically been imprisoned under communism that was now able to sort of taste freedom and that he believed that the United States needed to be part of sort of generating that effort. Um, the second part... Of the, of the sort of Clinton vision that, again, started early on. If you go back and read his speeches uh, in 1991 when he was just starting to articulate his policy platform as a candidate and then later as a president, this, the second pillar was about the approach to globalization. Uh, you know, Clinton, uh, again, early on made very much the rationale for her, the policies as president was that, was that, you know, borders were mattering less around the world, that the global economy needed to be integrated into how we thought about foreign policy, uh, and that with the spread of technology and, and knowledge around the world, it, it would bring both huge opportunities for, for people and for Americans, but also huge challenges for us here at home. And that as a country, we needed to be better, and as citizens, we needed to be better prepared to compete in this new globalized world. And Clinton, uh, in many ways, was, became a, sort of an evangelist about globalization and was constantly talking about it and constantly couching all of his policies, foreign and domestic, within the context of having to, to make America uh, able to lead in this sort of globalized era. Now, that was not uncontroversial in the Democratic Party, certainly. I mean, particularly as this sort of globalization agenda manifested in policy, particularly in trade. I mean, Clinton was a free trader. Uh, he, or he campaigned for president in 1992, championing free trade, you know, facing down uh, unions, which were much stronger then even than they are today uh, in the Democratic Party, Party politics. And to get his free trade agenda passed, things like NAFTA, or the GATT, or the creation of the WTO, Clinton had to take some real risks and actually in incur some real costs politically. Uh, you know, most of his trade agenda was passed through the Congress with majority Republican help. Uh, you know, it was sort of you used the Republicans as your base, and then he had to sort of peel off as many Democrats as he could to get over the top to get his agenda passed. Um, now, although there, it was hugely controversial in the early 90s, the trade agenda in particular, what we try to show in this book is by the end of Clinton's presidency, uh, this sort of this idea that globalization should be something that should be embraced and that free trade is something that Democrats should push for became something of a consensus, uh, at least among policy elites and, and I, we argue political elites, uh, liberal political elites, uh, uh, as they sort of thought about a vision for democratic foreign policy moving forward. Um, the third pillar of what was sort of the democratic and Clinton foreign policy was uh, also a very, very difficult one, um, and one that Clinton struggled with, uh, particularly in the early years of his presidency, but by the end he was able to find a degree of success. And that is the issue of the use of force and the, and the, the relationship with the military. Um, again, during the Cold War, Democrats always seemed to be on the, on the sort of 
the wrong end of that, at least politically. There was, there was Republicans constantly were able to outmaneuver Democrats in framing Democrats as weak when it came to managing the military. I mean, this is especially after the wake of Vietnam. Uh, somehow irresponsible and just not, un, not understanding the military culture. I mean, it's, it was the and Democrats found themselves constantly trying to show that they were tough. Uh, you know, it was that impulse that put Michael Dukakis in the tank in 1988. You know, it was the effort to show, hey, we get it. You know, I can be a commander in chief. Clinton certainly started his presidency sort of, you know, behind the eight ball a bit when it came to his handling of the military. I mean, of course, his, his status, his draft status during Vietnam became very much a hot button issue during the campaign in 92. And he had some early missteps as president. I mean, he... he he sort of bumbled into a controversy on gays in the military early in his presidency. Uh, you know, Colin Powell, who had been uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, that Clinton inherited, Powell for the first eight months of the Clinton administration was Clinton's chairman of the Joint Chiefs until he retired. But he, he mentioned to us that, you know, in his first meeting with Clinton as commander-in-chief with the rest of the military chiefs in the White House, it was a three-hour meeting and two and a half hours were taken up with gays in the military, which, you know, they quickly leaked out, and so that sort of sort of reinforced a view that many people had, not just of Clinton personally, but Democrats generally when it came to the, to the military. And then, of course, Clinton early in his presidency had some very serious missteps uh, when it came to either using or, in some one case at least, not using the military. And, uh, you know, we detail that in I, some somewhat painful detail uh, in the book. And I'm thinking here in particular of uh, the you know, inability to solve the Bosnia War for several years, uh, the struggle of, with Haiti, that very, we had several sort of crises with Haiti in the early 1990s, the non-use of, of, of military intervention in Rwanda, in which 800,000 people were killed in 100 days in 1994, and uh, very painfully for the U.S. military, the Black Hawk Down incident in Somalia, in which 19 American rangers were killed in the streets of Mogadishu in October 1993. Those four incidents were, were, I mean, there's no other way to look at it than they were, they were catastrophes. Um, that said, and, and they very much framed the view that many had about Clinton, that he was somehow unable to manage the military. And we argue in the book from, a, from a, the Republican perspective, those missteps were, were sort of ones that Republicans were never able to get over. And that if you sort of look at the Republican critiques of Clinton as the decade wore on, they constantly went back to those missteps in 93, 94, even though the history of those years, as we show in the book, showed that, that, that Clinton actually got better at managing the military. He, by the end of his presidency, he was a pretty good commander-in-chief. Uh, he used the military quite effectively, and I think he, he was able to balance risk and cost quite well. He also had earned a lot of respect from senior officials in uniform. I mean, it was interesting. We, we interviewed many of these officials uh, who, you know, folks who had served at, at, high, at the highest levels uh, under President Clinton in the military. And they were very honest with us and said, you know, this was a guy, we were, we're, we're, I'm a Republican, we, I never voted for the guy, but I really respected him as a president. He was a great military leader. He, he, you know, he was good with the Pentagon. And I think that's not the caricature that certainly those on the right have of Clinton, uh, because they sort of they got stuck in the ninety three ninety four period in which you know Bosnia Somalia Rwanda and Haiti seemed to define uh, Clintonism when it came to the military uh, and the fourth pillar of of democratic foreign policy was sort of a, a it was a broader one and it was about uh, kind of the necessity of American leadership in the world 
and it became defined by a phrase that emerged mid-decade, but you know, very much carried through uh, the, the rest of the Clinton years, and it was the idea that America was an indispensable nation. Now, that phrase often gets associated with Madeleine Albright, who was the second-term Secretary of State, uh, because she uttered it often. But, in fact, it was Bill Clinton's phrase. He had, he had used it uh, quite often during the 1996 presidential campaign. It was in, during his uh, convention speech in 96, his uh, second inaugural address in January uh, 1997. He used this phrase when talking about America's role in the world. And it's interesting because it connoted several things. It, it, when we were talking with, with Secretary Albright about this, um, you know, she said she made very clear to us that, that part of the reason they used that phrase at the time was they wanted to make the case to the American people that, in fact, we as a country needed to be engaged in the world, that we were indispensable, that there were so many problems out there from, you know, uh, climate change to nonproliferation to the spread of democracy, that if the U.S. wasn't part of, part of it, it wouldn't get done. And so that's how we were indispensable. But, of course, what happened during that time is many of our, particularly our friends overseas, heard that and heard it as boastfulness and heard it as sort of a statement that, you know, we were better than everybody else. And you, you actually have seen in recent years, you know, Republicans remind everyone that, well, Clinton called America the indispensable nation as a way to try to bring the Clinton team into the mistakes of the last seven years. Um, but the point, the point remains that the Clinton team, uh, you know, left office in 2001 with this idea that the United States leadership was indispensable around the world and that we needed to have a vision and, and, a, and a sort of bold way forward. And that sort of fed into the other, other three pillars of the Clinton foreign policy on, on democracy promotion, on the, the globalization agenda, agenda, and on the, the sort of use of the military, particularly when it came to humanitarian crises. And that kind of was where Democrats were in 2001 in terms of their foreign policy. You, you saw that really that was the core of the Al Gore campaign in 2000. Uh, so what's happened since? And it's interesting. I mean, I think if you look at the politics within the Democratic Party uh, during the George W. Bush years, sort of each aspect of those pillars is, is being questioned more and more by many Democrats. Democracy promotion, for example. I think a lot of folks, you know, sort of observing the history of the last seven years think, God, isn't that a George Bush thing? I mean, isn't that, that's the freedom agenda, and that's kind of why we got into Iraq, and that's, that's just a mess. And you see that there's a, even though I think elites still hold on to this idea that the U.S. needs to be promoting democracy, it's definitely more politically difficult to make that case now than it was before. Globalization agenda. Again, we you know watching the last primary campaign where you had basically every Democratic candidate for president being very critical of of you know free trade in many ways and you know stepping over themselves to sort of be protectionist. Even Hillary Clinton, you know, whose own husband had taken a real hit politically to sort of pass his free trade deals, was saying, well, you know, NAFTA maybe it hasn't been so great. I don't know if we should throw it out, but we certainly need to amend it. And I think that, that although it is important to point out, I think, you know, for most Democratic elites, they're free traders. I think politically within the Democratic Party, if Barack Obama's elected, uh, or even if we just have a Democratic Congress and John McCain's the president, um, how Democrats come down on free trade moving forward is a legacy of the, the Democratic consensus formed during the 1990s that they're still going to have to come to grips with. The use of force. Clearly, the, the hangover from an experience from Iraq and Afghanistan 
and Bush's uh, use, uses of force around the world is something that politically has become more and more controversial for many liberals when it comes to sort of contemplating other possible interventions around the world. The next president, whoever it is, is, is going to be, first of all, he, he's going to inherit you know, uses of force in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, but there'll also be situations that will arise that we can't necessarily predict right now. I mean, you, whether it's a humanitarian catastrophe in a place like Burma and questions of whether or not the U.S. military should be involved in some way to deliver humanitarian aid or, of course, the, the festering crisis in Darfur in which, you know, Republicans and Democrats have called a genocide, but yet we haven't really acted as though we were going to do much to stop that genocide. So in the use of force, the politics within the Democratic Party has got more complicated. And I also think uh, on the indispensable nation, sort of this idea of America as a, as a, as a unique power. Clearly, I think we are, we are being sobered up a bit by the experiences in Iraq and Afghanistan and also the current economic crisis about what, what capability we're going to have uh, around, to do things around the world. But I also think for some Democrats politically, this, this sort of the, the, tonal, the tone of the indispensable nation talk, that it, sort of, it kind of seems a little Bush-like. Uh, you know, if we look back on the last seven years, that there might be an impulse for the next president to sort of dial that back a bit. I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but it's the politics of that have changed. Now, just to rest assured, it's not just Democrats who are facing a set of challenges. It's also uh, uh, conservatives, and I, and I think we argue in this, but conservatives are actually facing a greater set of challenges. Um, politically, the war on terror... Uh, uh, became a sort of unifying thing for conservatives at a moment. Conservatives came into the George W. Bush years deeply divided about America's role in the world. 9-11 um, occurs, and the war on terror and Islamic extremism becomes what communism was during the Cold War for a brief moment. There was a sense for conservatives that, aha, we can rally ourselves around this idea that we need to be taking the fight to the enemy and be doing everything possible to take down Islamic extremists, just like we did for the, against the communists during the Cold War. And what we think is happening is that as the war on terror, as Jim has explained, as the war on terror frame has become, to a certain extent, delegitimized and certainly questioned, not just by you know, common citizens, by policy professionals, by politicians, that you're seeing conservatives fracture and factionalize along the lines you saw emerge after 11-9 and the end of the Cold War. You see this in the campaign of John McCain. Heck, you even see it in the person of John McCain, where you know, he, his, many of his views and statements embody both kind of the classic you know, realist point of view that would have been associated with a George H.W. Bush agenda. I mean, John McCain is, you know, I think, thankfully, not saying highly negative things about the United Nations and and does talk about the importance of working with others uh, and, say, working with a country like Russia on something like arms control. But then at the same time, you see McCain articulate policies towards Iran or also uh, you know, towards Russia, for example, that are more sort of akin to what the neoconservatives would say. You know, on the one hand, we're going to do arms control with Russia. On the other hand, we're going to kick them out of the G8. Well, I'm interested to see how you sort of square that circle. Um, so... And then at the same time, you're seeing some conservatives who are coming up more in this, well, wait a second, maybe this, this whole deal with us being so involved in the world isn't working out as well as we thought. And the problem has been not just in the Bush years, but in the Clinton years, is we've overreached. 
You saw that, say, in the campaign of Ron Paul during, this, during these primaries. And so what's happening among conservatives is that they're splintering. And these fights that were the fights that animated the conservative debates in the 1990s, these fights will play out if John McCain wins the White House. They will play out in his presidency. And these fights will play out if John McCain loses this election. And they will, I, our prediction is we will see something of a civil war in the Republican Party for the heart and soul of conservative foreign policy moving forward because McCain will most likely not be the standard bearer for conservatives if he loses this election. He's 72 years old. Most conservatives never really liked him much anyway, and he'll go back to the Senate, and they'll be looking for a new future. But behind, you know, behind that individual will be sets of ideas and debates about those ideas. And what we'll see happening among the Republicans, we believe, is really not a new thing, but it's actually what we saw first uh, take place in the days and weeks and months after 11-9 and the fall of the Berlin Wall, in which conservatives began to splinter. So with that uh, overview, we're happy to take your questions, comments, uh, criticisms, you name it. Okay, now we'll be in our Q&A portion of our discussion tonight. We want to remind you that this is being broadcast, um, sorry, recorded for podcast. And uh, so we do need to take your name before your question. And all questions must be asked into the microphone. And also at this time, our buckets will be going around. So we do appreciate any and all support. Any questions for our guests tonight? Gentlemen, question to your right. Uh, my, name, my name is David, and um, I was interested in, as you wa watch the campaign now and as I watch the campaign now, the distinction between um, not so much policy uh, um, between the Democrats and Republicans as um, the way you talk about policy versus the actual implementation. So it's hard to believe that, for example, if, if John McCain were become president, that he would he would speak about Russia the way he did yeah. after the invasion. Yeah. Um, yet what disturbs me the most is that when you advocate something nuanced, and uh, um, since the end of the Cold War, you, okay, you um, things will look a little bit more nuanced, you'll look weak. Mm -hmm. it, it, it seems like it's, it's actually really hurt Obama. Mm -hmm. Anytime he says, well, there's two sides, and you talk to your enemy, that, that's going to help hurt him politically. Mm -hmm. Well, um, I wouldn't rush to think, in fact, that John McCain wouldn't say the things as president that he's been saying during this campaign. I mean, he's a very, he, you know, he clearly is someone who follows his gut, who reacts instinctively to things, whose reaction to problems often is sort of, you know, t to be tough. Um, and, you know, of course, you'd have the practicality. So, for example, you know, he can argue that Russia should be kicked out of the G8. I mean, as a practical matter, you'd have to get the other members uh, to agree to do it, and that's going to be rather difficult. But, um, I, 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 you know, I think what you see is what you get. So I, I think that, in fact, um, you know, this, that's, you know, I think he would probably argue it's part of his charm. I mean, that this is what you'd get. Uh, as president. On the nuance thing, you know, one of the things that's been most interesting about the campaign in recent months, Obama certainly took a lot of, uh, or got, attracted a lot of notice for his comments that he would be willing to engage with our adversaries. And this was something that was a big deal during the primaries, and then, you know, Republicans had been very critical of, of his 
of his comments. Very interesting, though, to, and, and, you know, this is part of this sort of having a more nuanced approach to trying to solve problems. Um, it's interesting to see where the Bush administration has been in recent months. Uh, if you remember the old axis of evil, of course, we're heavily involved in uh, one of those countries. And the other two, Iran and North Korea, uh, were negotiating. So, you know, after saying we wouldn't negotiate, we sent a senior diplomat to Geneva to participate in discussions. And there had even been talk about opening an interest section in Tehran. Uh, and on North Korea, um, you know, even with the news of the day and North Korea, you know, kicking inspectors out and, and um, re, uh, regenerating, uh, reprocessing capabilities uh, at, at, uh, at least, you know, one of its uh, facilities, uh, there's still an emphasis from the Bush administration on the six-party talks, the negotiations that are designed to try to help resolve the North Korean problem. So what's been interesting over the last few months is that, you know, there's been this debate in the campaign between Obama and McCain, but the Bush administration has moved in important ways toward the Obama positions. And in fact, you know, has led to real criticism from conservative Republicans. John Bolton, who was uh, Bush's UN ambassador, uh, in the summer was so agitated that he, you know, he said this was the intellectual collapse of the Bush administration, and he said the Obama administration has started six months early. Uh, but, you know, I think that it, you know, it, it, having the Bush administration move in that direction does recast the debate somewhat, and certainly, you know, if they get into this discussion about talking with our adversaries uh, in this foreign policy debate, uh, you know, Obama, to the extent that he talks about it, uh, will be very much in sort of where we are right now as a foreign policy, and it, it'll be McCain who's the odd man out if he sticks to, sticks to a line that, you know, we shouldn't be talking to any of these people. It just, if I want to add something to that, is, I mean, you're getting into many, in many ways what you're talking about is the difference between campaigning and governing. And, you know, there's the old saw that campaigning is about raising expectations and governing is about lowering them. Um, but, uh, and part of, part of what we focus on in this book, uh, which I think is interesting given what we're going to be going through in December and January of this coming year, are the transitions between, say, George H.W. Bush, Republicans and Democrats in, in December 92, January 93, and the transition between Clinton and George W. Bush in which was a truncated one because of the, the Florida recount issue, but so a few weeks in December of 2000 and, of course, January 2001. And I think you can derive lessons from the transitions because transitions are very much about how you translate what you've promised to do on the campaign trail into reality and kind of living with your words, basically, right? Um, I mean, the gays in the military thing that I mentioned earlier, it kind of was, it, it, the origin of it was kind of one of these throwaway lines that politicians do all the time on the campaign trail just to kind of, you know, you know, appease a particular group, and then all of a sudden, but, you know, you're a candidate for president, and all of a sudden you're, all those words you uttered as a candidate, that's what people are going to hold you to. And what's interesting, on, on the, and from the Clinton side, on, during the 92 transition, I think one of clear, clearly the lessons learned, and I, I'm very confident that if Obama wins, this is not going to be a problem, but that there was a sense of foreign policy didn't matter as much, and that kind of, it could kind of go on cruise control, and the president himself could be less involved in the mechanics and management of foreign policy. And I think part of the explanation for the early missteps 
of President Clinton uh, in 1993 on foreign policy issues was coming to grips with the idea that actually he was going to be a foreign policy president and that presidents, you know, the world will find you if, even if you're not looking for it. Um, but on the, on, the, on the second transition that we look at between uh, Clinton and Bush then eight years later, uh, what we see is, is a different thing going on, which is the Republicans coming into office believing that they're the masters of the universe, that they are sort of the, the you know, all-knowing professionals of foreign policy. And let's be fair, I think many, almost everyone in the press and many of us believed it. I mean, even if we didn't vote for George W. Bush in 2000, there was a sense of, all right, you know, Colin Powell's about a pretty serious guy. Dick Cheney at the time was not the Dick Cheney that we think of today. I mean, he was seen as someone who was a very widely respected defense secretary. I mean, Paul Wolfowitz was someone who was very widely respected. And, uh, you know, Don Rumsfeld even was seen as like, you know, he'd been the youngest defense secretary, and boy, he's coming off the bench, and boy, this is, the big boys are here, right? And they kind of, they went, entered their transition with, with an with a astonishing degree of hubris about, you know, their abilities and knowledge and also astonishing disdain about what had come before them. And so they, you know, they entered office with the ABC policy, anything but Clinton. And there was a sense that, you know, whatever Clinton and the Democrats have been associated with, we're going to do the opposite because it must have been meaningless. And I think what we saw then sort of transpire in those early months of the Bush administration, then definitely in, the, in after 9-11, was the, the sort of ramifications of that hubris that they entered office with. You have a question up in the front row here. Uh, Todd Kerner. It's interesting because I'm impressed by the fact that we moved from a singular godless communist enemy to now what has descended into essentially tribalism and religious conflicts. Mm -hmm. Can you comment a bit on how the external conflicts, Darfur, Rwanda, South Ossetia, even Iraq, uh, compares with internal tribalism in terms of Democrats and Republicans, which mm. seems to have taken a different turn now that we've left the Cold War behind. Hmm. That's a good question. <laughs> I love doing these things because you get great questions and they're never the same. Uh, well, I mean, the obvious is, you know, thankfully our, our, our tribalism uh, is, is uh, although heated and, and oftentimes very bitter, is peaceful. Um, so that's, that's a big difference. Um, but I think I mean, what's interesting kind of maybe to take your, draw your question back a little bit in terms of the frame is that, you know, what we saw uh, uh, during the, this, this period between 11.9 and 9.11 and that we're still seeing today is the struggle of adapting to challenges that aren't kind of clean chessboard moves, you know, which in many ways was the first Gulf War, right? A sovereign state, Iraq, intervene or invades another sovereign state, Kuwait. You're sort of classic problem of international politics, right? What we see sort of coming and coming out in the 1990s was a sense of borders breaking down and tribalism emerging. And those borders, which after all, after all were man-made fictions, right? I mean, they were, they were carved up by people being contested. And then and sort of dealing with how they were contested became very difficult because the institutions we had to deal with those situations, even the ideas about sovereignty and what constituted a state or not, was under assault. And so that's in part was the struggle that was underway during these years and that we're still grappling with today when, I mean, you know, just in the last six months, we've had one of these internal provinces, Kosovo, go independent, two, well, actually three. If you, I mean, if you count South Ossetia and Abkhazia in Georgia, I mean, they've self-proclaimed independent. Kosovo was recognized as independent. And so we're, in many ways, we're still dealing with that process 
that for, we first started to kind of struggle with in the early 1990s at the wake of 11-9. Question in your midsection up here. Hi, I'm, my name is, <coughs> excuse me, my name is Bruno. Uh, I have a quite, you have it in your title, 9-11, and you mention it a lot. And uh, there's a couple of things that you talk about from 11-9 to 9-11, or that you don't talk about, mm -hmm. that seem to have a really big influence over everything, and that's the Federal Reserve, that a lot of people don't realize that the Federal Reserve is a private corporation that was, has control over our money, and illegally, unconstitutionally, because mm -hmm. uh, uh, Congress had no right to give a private corporation control of our money. And the other one is 9-11, that it's, people are waking up to the fact that things happen on 9-11, that there's kind of a media blackout on what happened on 9-11. Uh, so how can you have 9-11 in title and not talk about the fact that the Twin Towers were brought down and controlled demolition and Building 7, which not many people know about, was also brought down and controlled demolition? Uh, I think I'll talk about the Federal Reserve because I don't... I mean, look, you know, there are lots of, um, there are lots of views out there about 9-11. I mean, I'm, you know, I believe that there were 19 terrorists trained to fly airplanes uh, into buildings, and they did so on 9-11, and, you know, tremendous tragedy uh, for the American people. Um, the... the um, but I, the, you know, this issue of sort of on the, on the economy, and of course, you know, we are in this uh, terrible uh, financial crisis today. And it is interesting to go back and look at the 90s and think of it, because, you know, you remember we had you know, this incredible, incredibly powerful chairman of the Federal Reserve, Alan Greenspan. Uh, and we also had very powerful secretaries of the Treasury and Robert Rubin and Larry Summers. Uh, we also had a we also had a booming economy. It's interesting. They you know they were mainly dealing with financial crises out external to the United States. In 1994, Mexico went into a great financial crisis, and there was a whole question about whether or not the United States would bail out Mexico. And hugely politically challenging issue: 80% of the American population didn't want to bail out, and the Clinton administration believed that it had to bail out Mexico and did. Uh, and in fact, uh, you know, the money was repaid and repaid early. Um, uh, you know, interesting to think about when you, you, you know we hear discussions today about sort of the 700 billion and buying assets and whether or not you know we would we would get that back later. I mean, there was a huge political risk that Bill Clinton took in 1995, uh, and it worked out. Also, you had a huge financial crisis in 1997, 1998, the Asian financial crisis that then spreads, and you know, sort of. You know, you know, for us doing the research, watching these incredibly talented and knowledgeable economists, I, I kept thinking as I as I interview as we interviewed them and you know talked to them. I mean, these were people who really knew a lot about the economy, and they were clearly just you know totally shocked and surprised by how this crisis in Thailand then spreads rapidly throughout the world. So even these people, you know, following it all the time, really know you know these these issues, were still taken totally by surprise. And there's a huge critique of the, by the Bush team of these Clinton economic officials. Paul O'Neill, who was George W. Bush's first Treasury Secretary, criticized that Clinton team. He said they were like firemen. You know, they were just putting out, you know, going from crisis to crisis and putting out these fires. But they hadn't developed a framework to prevent these crises 
from breaking out in the first place. Well, you talk about putting out a fire, <laughs> okay? I mean, you know, it's a lot easier to, you know, say it than it is to actually develop that framework. And, you know, should give us all pause, you know, that even these people, you know, who are, you know, following this all the time, every day, responsible for these things, and, you know, that we end up in the, in the situation that we, are, that we are in today. I think that, you know, we really can look back and draw some lessons from the 1990s and, and, and realize, I mean, in terms of these, you know, we are going to get these crises. The real question is, do we have the capacity to deal with them in such a way that we can, that we can in fact, move beyond them, as we did with the external crises, the peso crisis of 94, 95, and then the the, the, the larger global financial crisis of 97, 98. When that crisis came out in 1997, 98, you know, Bill Clinton talked about it as this is the greatest financial crisis since the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. Okay, now we're in the greatest financial <laughs> crisis since the Great Depression. But, you know, it's, it's really about the ability of, of the political leadership to, to manage them. I have a question to your right, gentlemen. And this will be our final question of the night. If any of you have remaining questions, you have the opportunity to speak to our speakers out in the reception area. Thank you. Hi, James and Derek. Uh, I'm Bryant Krause. And uh, my, my question has to do with the extent of your analysis and looking at the period that you looked at, uh, how uh, the rise in terrorist activity uh, was affected by policy failures and political failures in the 90s and whether you got a chance to come up with some sort of mm-hmm. uh, set of conclusions about mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we do, obviously, I mean, look at the sort of the rise of Islamic extremism and, and the, the struggle to understand that and the government's response uh, to that th- throughout the 1990s. And I mean, what was interesting to us uh, as, as we were talking to many of these folks and, and also, you know, there's been a mountain of stuff published about, you know, government and the government documents declassified and whatnot about uh, what was going on during these years when it came to sort of understanding al-Qaeda in particular. Uh, and as you alluded to, there, there were a series of terrorist acts, you know, starting in 1993 with the first World Trade Center bombing, the truck bomb. Uh, you know, in acts of domestic terror, for example, the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995, which I remember as a, as a resident of Washington, that was kind of the first moment that shook everybody, and that's when they closed the street in front of the White House and stuff was Oklahoma City. Um, but then, of course, the, the Marine barracks bombing, or the Marine barracks, the um, Air Force uh, barracks bombing in, in uh, Saudi Arabia in 96, uh, the embassy bombings in August of 1998 uh, in uh, Kenya and Tanzania. And so there was a sort of slow awakening uh, you know, within the Clinton administration about the threat from Islamic extremism. It's, it, it was, it kind of goes back to the tribalism point. I mean, this idea that stateless actors, you know, folks with, you know, living in a cave somewhere could use technology to reap such harm was something that t- it took a while to people to sort of believe. And, I mean, we argue in the book that for folks on the other, you know, many Republicans, they didn't believe, in fact. They, they believed that, of course, there were acts of terror, but that you needed a state sponsor to actually be able to commit that act and organize that. Um, and I guess our story on this, particularly from the, the Clinton perspective, is more of a tragedy in that it was striking that, that, that I think Bill Clinton himself and his top national security advisors by 97, 98, 99 in particular really understood the threat of al-Qaeda. And, you know, internally they talked about it as though, you know, we are at war. I mean, they used those words internally. Um, but that never... 
really sort of reached the wider public. I mean, we lived in Washington during those years. You know, you were aware during those years. I don't think any of us recall, think of it as being years at war in any way. Um, and it's not that the Clinton team didn't try. I mean, when we interviewed Sandy Berger, who was Clinton's first or uh, second national security advisor, and we, we sort of asked him this question. You know, we, we understand you were writing documents and talking about this as though you were at war, but yet it didn't translate. He was pretty defensive and got up, you know, from his chair and pulled down from the, from the credenza this big, you know, binder of all the speeches that every senior national security official in the Clinton administration had given during these years on the threat from al-Qaeda and terrorism. And it was an impressive bunch of speeches, but it just never got traction. Um, and then also, even though the, the, the Clinton team was organizing a response to al-Qaeda, and particularly after 1998 and the embassy bombings, it was unfolding at the same time a, the public's attention was captured by another uh, crisis in Washington, and that was the Monica Lewinsky affair. Um, I mean, on the day, or it was, it was right around the time that he launched uh, the retaliatory attacks for the embassy bombings was the time that he uh, testified uh, in the Monica Lewinsky affair. And, you know, there were accusations that he, the so-called wag the dog scenario, the movie out around the same time about, you know, a president kind of engineering some foreign crisis to take it, to divert people's attention from domestic woes or personal woes. And so it was a tragedy because Clinton got it. And, you know, all, everyone we talked to said, hey, you know, we were, the, his lawyers dealt with Monica Lewinsky, but we as senior national security people, we just kind of kept to our knitting and, and, you know, worried about this. It just, you know, there's certainly, it, it, def it, it deflected from at least the public case they were trying to make about the threat from Islamic extremism. Yeah, and then just, of course, then, you know, then you have the George W. Bush administration. And, you know, the tragedy there is you had a team that probably could have really led and made the case, but they didn't get it. You know, when Clinton left, I mean, the transition, they kept telling the Bush team, you are going to spend more time worrying about al-Qaeda than anything else you deal with. They had last been in office, you know, in the early 1990s. They had an old mindset. It's all about states. You know, these groups, I mean, come on, they said, you know, group in a cave. I mean, they're nothing without the Irans and Iraqs. And that was their focus. They just didn't get it uh, until 9-11. So you had this, you know, we write about this, this twin tragedy. Clinton got it, but he wasn't able to lead because he was saddled with this thing that, you know, I mean, it was an affair of his own making, right, Monica Lewinsky? And then you have George W. Bush, who had a team and a, and a president he probably could have led, but he didn't get it. Just out here, where Skylight Books is going to be selling copies of our guest's book tonight, America Between the Wars, and we highly recommend you guys get a copy. And also, Sokala would like to take the time to thank you guys for joining us tonight. You guys were great. Thank you for sharing Thank your you. thoughts. Thanks a lot, well, everybody. Thank you. Thank Come you all. Really appreciate it. Thanks.